It is, uh, aren't you glad? Scripture says that we need to be ready in season and out of season. We are fortunate to have people that can step up in various areas in our church, whether it's leading worship or leading a different ministry. We're covered. So it's good to see your faces. I was gone for like three weeks. Anne and I took a trip to Ireland to celebrate our 30th wedding anniversary. I thought after two kids and a couple grandkids, she deserved it. Uh, so we, uh, yes, she's already planning the next trip. She's not going to wait till 35. <laughs> yes, exactly. So when you go to a foreign country, and it was my first time ever out of the States, and when we were planning this, I said, it's got to be somewhere that speaks English so I can fairly understand and know what I'm doing. And, uh, but Ireland is so different. It's, it's, it's gorgeous. It, it gives Alaska a run for its money. And uh, so one of the first things we did, we got to Dublin and we took a taxi and we stayed at a, a cute little B&B and we spent a couple days there, and then we were going to drive to Port Stewart, and we had to pick up the rental car. Now, if you know anything about Europe, what side of the car do they drive on? They drive on the right. What side of the road do they drive on? The left. And so... It was confusing. It was intimidating. However, when you get up to the stand, they give you a little green uh, wrist bracelet that says, keep to the left for all the people who've never been there before. And so uh, we got on the road, and their roads are super narrow. They do have highway roads, but most of the roads within cities and the rural areas can only fit like two Priuses. And so we're driving, and we're passing big tour buses, we're passing farm equipment, and Anne's just like white-knuckling. And uh, for her, being the passenger, because I was the chauffeur the entire trip, she begged to drive, and I said no. Uh, for her, it was like a bad Beyonce song. To the left, to the left. And she even had her own dance moves, because when I was driving, I'm nervous as well, so I'm staying close to the edge, and she's like, get over, get over, get over. Eventually, we both became confident, and uh, my goal throughout the, the trip was only to rub a curb once or twice. I only went down a wrong way street once, and the car was returned with all its mirrors. Uh, they'll probably need an alignment but it came back in one piece. Uh, I just want to thank you for the opportunity because uh, missed you guys. So, let's get into it. We're going to be in the book of Acts. We're going to start in, in uh, chapter 20, but then we're going to take a little detour. Take a, I'm going to take you on a little uh, tourism trip with Paul. Before we get going, let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for what you are doing in this congregation, in this local body of believers, those who come every week and are still searching for you, those who have committed their lives and want to do more for you with it. And whether that is speaking from the pulpit or playing on the worship team or changing diapers, we all do this together. In Jesus' name, amen. Almost three years ago, God placed in the hearts and minds of a small group of men and women to plant this church. This would be a group of hurting people that wanted to be used by God to help other hurting people. AC Squared has been in a season of healing since its very inception. God has been faithful. He's been patient. He's been merciful with a young pastor and a church in its infancy. However, some of the founding members, families, men and women that helped to found this church aren't with us. Others have come and gone. I have no knowledge of names or circumstances, but the reasons may vary from moving out of state to disagreements with the leadership's vision and direction of the church. A church, whether it's this church or another church, is constantly in transition. We don't stay any one place too long. Whether it's your job or your home or your school, we seem as a society to always be on the move. In February, Matt, as he spoke about earlier, released the monthly newsletter. He shared in his newsletter the vision for the church for this upcoming year. His vision had a soft rebuke because he would be reducing his time in the pulpit to focus on you, members in the community that have the gift to speak and to teach. You have the opportunity to share your gift with us. And I look forward to hearing from the various speakers that we're going to have. What Matt did in that newsletter would have shocked a normal church. It would have been unacceptable to an ordinary elder board. But we need to understand, as Christians, our role in the life of the church. Do you think because Matt is not up here every week preaching, that he's not still doing his job and what God has called him to do with AC Squared? 
He's even taken on more work because he no longer has to just worry and prepare himself. Now he's helping everyone that wants this opportunity. He's spending hours in meetings, phone calls, text messages, encouraging all of us. His job didn't get any easier. In fact, it's probably become a little more difficult if we're honest. For those visiting this morning, you arrive at a time in our church's transition from a long period of healing into a period of growth and maturation. I understand and I even empathize with those here today when church shopping, it's essential to experience a normal church service, right? You want to know the order of service. You want to know what to expect if you decide to come back the next week and the next week and the next week. You want to know how it opens. You want to know how the praise and prayer, uh, praise and worship team does. You want to know how the announcements are delivered. And then you want to hear the three-point sermon that every pastor gives. You know what to expect. Don't expect that from Matt. You might get a 25-point sermon. If you're lucky. When I was visiting churches and the pastor, and this happens all the time, I don't know why when people visit churches, the pastor just isn't in the pulpit. I felt ripped off. I felt cheated. I was like, well, if, if, if the man... The face that runs a place ain't in the pulpit. What am I doing here? I want to know what he's about because everyone's going to follow him. But we're not here to follow any one man. We're not here following any one program. We are here this morning to follow Jesus. A little too early for Clyde. <laughs> now, as Ann and I began to plan our trip to Ireland, we realized that we would have to set aside our American expectations if we were going to enjoy every bit of Ireland that we could. It was really different. Not just from driving on the right to being on the left. It was like we were in Dublin, we were in Belfast, we were in Limerick. And you know what wasn't there? A police presence. There was like no police around. I was like, how's that, how's that even happen? But then there's the other subtle things. Like keys to doors. This started out rough for us. They use skeleton keys. You know what a skeleton key is? Think back to like the 1800s. And so you got to get the key in there just right. You got to feel it and then you got to move it. And you finally get in. And then what I didn't know 
was that when the door closes, it locks on you. So later on the next day, when Ann and I were ready to go about our day, I go to the door and I'm like, I'm, this thing of fear just comes over me. I was like, we're locked in. How are we going to get out? We're going to have to call the front desk. She goes, you got to let us out, honey. So we got out. I mastered the keys. They're electrical plugs. Have you guys watched any uh, British TV? They've got these plugs that are like the size of my hand, and our little plugs don't fit in them, so you got to buy an adapter. They don't have switches on the inside of the bathrooms. They've got one uh, outlet for men's shavers. Uh, in some of the older buildings, it was really bad because the older buildings, the doors weren't very tall. If they were above six feet, you were lucky. And if they were this wide, you were even luckier. So it wasn't a very handicapped, accessible buildings at time. But the main thing for Ann and I, and we struggled with this, was when we had morning breakfasts, and we go to get our coffee, there's no Splenda for one. It's all sugar, the real stuff. The next thing is, there's no cream on the table. They do everything with milk. The Irish insist on it. Their bacon, Rob. I'm glad you weren't there with me. What they call bacon is a slice of meat that they fry up, put on your plate. It's not bacon. I'm sorry. I will argue with any Irishman that it's not bacon. It's not thin strips. It's not fat. It's not... Oh, you guys know what bacon is. The first century churches established by the disciples and the Apostle Paul had the luxury of intimate knowledge, history, cultural experience of which their scripture, the Old Testament, was set in. This allowed them to be able to understand how to function as new believers within any particular culture. First century believers also learned what to avoid. Some things in Ireland we got were right in on. Other things were like, no thank you. The problem with the first century church is that they were the first century church. They had no example to follow. Their doctrine had not been established yet. And so in the beginning, like any new believers, coming from whether you were a Jew or a Gentile, there was going to be conflict. But one of the things that hurts the church most is when there's a conflict with its leadership. In the beginning of Acts, when Paul goes on his first missionary trip, Mark, for some reason, had to leave. Paul felt abandoned. So he wouldn't have Mark continue with him on any of his journeys because he didn't trust him. And then he confronts Peter about circumcision. 
and says, hey, we can't make the Gentiles be circumcised. They're not Jewish. There's a new covenant. What you're preaching is wrong. What you're teaching is wrong. To Peter, one of the twelve disciples, he's rebuking. And then Peter later on is rebuked by God in a dream. He dreams about all these, all these different animals that are, they can eat, and there's some things that are in there that they can't because they're Jewish. And God says, why do you call what I made unclean? No examples. They either heard directly from God or they had to work it out amongst themselves. But God still moved in mighty ways throughout Scripture, throughout Corinthians, throughout Ephesians, throughout Philippi. He moved in mighty ways through His disciples. This morning is the continuance of a maturation of what God is, has for AC Square. We move into a new era of the church's life. We transition from healing to a deeper relationship with God and each other. This morning, I invite you to set aside your church biases, preferences, expectations, grudges, and focus how in God intended the church to exist from the very beginning. We can glean from Paul's instructions and warnings to the elders of Ephesus of their infant church in order that the gospel continues to transform the lives of believers in our churches today. Let's go to Acts. We're going to Have you ever watched uh, a TV episode and they start with the end? kind of annoying, I know, but that's what we're going to do today. We're going to go to Acts chapter 20, and we're going to begin at verse 13. And this is after Paul had been with the Ephesians, and we're going to walk through everything that he experienced and everything that he did, but this is his final farewell. He's not in Ephesus, he's someplace else, but he wants one final meeting, one final discussion with the elders of Ephesus. We went on ahead on the, oh, excuse me, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears. Although I was severely tested by the plot of the Jews, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything and would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. 
I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going on to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying of the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among you, among whom I have gone out about preaching the kingdom, will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. So Paul's had his issues with the Jews. He's fixing to leave. He's going to Jerusalem. Ephesus is one of the most pivotal cities in the New Testament. The churches at Corinth, Galatia, Philippi receive most of the attention from the pulpit. They're like the problem childs. They get all the attention while the good, while the well-behaved child has to do what they know is correct, while the other person gets all the attention. Only to feel left ignored by the parents or guardian and envious of their sibling or their classmate. What can we learn from Paul's experience in Ephesus? He spent 18 months in Corinth troubleshooting a church with a ton of doctrinal and Christian conduct issues. While in Corinth, a great door of opportunity opened for Ephesus. 1 Corinthians 16, 8 through 9, Paul says, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Paul spent three years in Ephesus, causing a spiritual, cultural, and economic shift, leading not only one specific church, but an entire body of believers throughout an entire region of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. What was it about the Ephesian church that would inspire Paul to write the book of Ephesus with such affection and encouragement while not noting an open rebuke? Five years after his departure, what had remained with the Ephesian church continued to grow and prosper. To learn the answers, I want us to take a similar walk that Paul actually walked into Ephesus. And like any good tourist, we took a, a, black, tie, a black cab tour of, in Belfast about the, um, the political unrest that was there. Uh, the different areas of where famine and destruction and catastrophe broke out, where they literally put a wall separating Catholics and Protestant. It still stands today, and the goat and the gates still close. 
We weren't able to spend much time at every place and talk about all the events that happened there, but we got a a snapshot. So we're going to go back to chapter 19 in Acts and take a snapshot of what Paul did and what was going on in Ephesus. Before we can begin, though, we have to look at the backdrop of Ephesus. This is Paul's third missionary journey. And his work to bring the gospel to a young church plant that had been established by a couple of his friends, Priscilla and Aquila. Now, the historical importance of Ephesus is that it was founded in 4th century BCE by Lysimas. He was one of the 12 generals of Alexander the Great. In 133 BCE, Attalus, king of Pergamum, granted his kingdom to the Romans. Ephesus became a Roman province and capital city after Octavian defeated Mark Anthony at Anticum. And Rome was declared the capital city and incorporated into the Roman province. Now anytime you give a city the responsibility of being the capital city, it's got to have something to offer. Well, Ephesus had some advantages. They were located near sea sea trade routes through the Adrian Sea. They had land routes eastward to Galatia and Persia. The social implications. It was very culturally diverse. It was made up of Romans. It was made up of Greeks. It was made up of Jews. They were a very, very religious culture. They worshipped Roman gods, Greek gods. They were kind of like, you know, let's coexist. They were the guardian of Artemis and other deities. The economic impact, though, they had trade, they had commerce, they had business. They had it going on. They were the New York City of Asia Minor. They had influence on thought and philosophy. They were home of the largest library, Celsus. But their main attraction was their goddess, Artemis. She was a cross-cultural deity, The Greeks named her Diana because she was the daughter of Zeus and Leto and twin sister of Apollo. She was the goddess of wild animals, hunting, vegetation. In addition, she was goddess of chastity and childbirth. Theologians will argue that she was also known as being a fertility goddess. But what she was known for was her benevolence and her helpfulness for her followers. This had major 
cultural impacts. Because although there were many cults in Ephesus, and although Artemis was worshipped all around that known world, Ephesus was her guardian. It was the focal point of things related to Artemis. We're talking things like architecture. The temple of Artemis was constructed by Krosos, king of Lydia. It was considered the seventh wonder of the world at the time. It was the largest structure in Ephesus. It compared, if not overshadowed, the Pantheon in Greece. Needless to say, Artemis was a big deal. Artemis, they had statues of Artemis. But the real statue that was within the temple was a meteorite that had fell. It was this big black meteorite that had these globules all around it. Theologians discuss if, are they breasts or are they testicles? I don't know if that's really uh, something to debate about, but, you know, whatever. The Library of Celsus was the center of recorded thought, philosophy, and history. Theater at Ephesus was an open-air theater that sat 25,000 people. It was a place of entertainment. It was a place of social and political engagement. It was also where the riot broke out against Paul. Her economic impact was not just influential in the local economy, but the entire world. Festivals were held twice a year in her honor. People made privileges pilgrimages to worship Artemis from all over the world. Local silversmiths made money from selling statues. The temple was the epicenter of funding and the financial estates in Asia. It loaned money and it serviced mortgages. Now if you're interested, the resource that I uh, used for this portion of the sermon is by Dr. Ralph Menning, and the title of the paper was Contrast in Early Christian Communities. So we learn that Paul's motivation to going to Ephesus was there was this great door of opportunity. So he begins his journey. He begins his hike. He's going to an already established Jewish community and new disciples in a large metropolitan area. This is effective for church planning. Paul's work would have the greatest impact geographically, socially, culturally, and religiously. Before he even got into Ephesus, he was already strengthening and empowering and equipping the church. Acts 19, 1 through 6. 
And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, No. We have not led into John's baptism. And he said, In what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Now we know that whenever Paul came into a city, where was the first place he went? The synagogues. He went in to argue and debate the kingdom of God. That was one of the goals, one of his short-term goals when he got into any city. I'm going to tell him about Jesus. He was there for three months. He spoke boldly, reasoning, persuading some of them about the kingdom of God. But it goes on to say, but when he became stub when they became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years that all the residents of Asia heard of the word of the Lord, both Jews and Gentiles. Tyrannus was a local citizen that owned a structure, so Paul would rent it out. And in Ephesus at that time, the citizens that were working would take breaks at about 11 o'clock in the morning to about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I would love to have lived there. They did this because the sun was scorching hot, the temperatures were high, so this was a period for them to rest and cool off and regenerate. But what did Paul do during this time? He rented out the hall and he preached and he teached. After he was done tent making, he taught. Then after he was done teaching, he might go back to tent making. The, Tyran- the hall of Tyrannus ended up becoming the long-term goal for Paul. Paul did some extraordinary things. For time's sake, we'll do a drive-by. While Paul was there working with the disciples, everywhere he went, everything he did, the gospel was being affirmed. Not by man, but by God. Through man. There were extraordinary miracles. It's said that in chapter 19, that anything like his apron, 
that he wore or a handkerchief that he touched was taken to the ill and they would be healed. Acts chapter 19, 13 through 16, the seven sons of Sceva, who was a Jewish high priest that they practiced exorcism, tried to exorcise a demon in Jesus' name. They've done all these other methods, but now we're going we're gonna to go to Jesus. Works for Paul, works for his disciples, it'll work for us. The demon said, Jesus I know, Paul I'm aware of, but he asks them this one simple question before beating the crap out of them and sending them out of a house naked. Who are you? And because of this particular incident, the word of the Lord spread. And people who didn't know the one true God became scared because they're depending on every magical occult practice. But they came to know the authentic reality of God. They not just believed, they put their actions where their mouths were. They burnt their magical scrolls. Sorcerers came and threw stuff into the fire. They took their statues, their trinkets, because they believed in something that was real. They estimated that the that how much they threw away in scrolls and stuff was 50,000 pieces of silver at the time. In other uh, translations, it'll say drachmas. The economic impact of Paul preaching the Gospels and his disciples groom, being groomed by him had an amazing economic impact. And if you want to make an impact on somebody, you mess with their money. I don't care who you are, what you believe in, someone messes with your money, you're going to get a little upset. So a silversmith by the name of Demetrius accused Paul and his disciples of impacting the negative, impacting the local business. We're going to go to Acts 19, 23 through 34, just because I think it's imperative. About that time, there arose a little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business, we'll, from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying, the gods made with hands are no gods. And so they started a riot, and Paul wasn't a part of the riot because 
Friends that he had within the political community said, you're not coming near this. His disciples said, you can't go. So he left and he sailed to Greece. And he sailed back. But he sailed around Ephesus. But he wanted to have one last meeting with his elders. He wanted to talk to them about not short-term goals, not their long-term goals as a body. He wanted to talk about kingdom goals. Because Paul was taken off. They were going to have to carry the load. They were going to have to bear, uh, carry the burden. Pick up their crosses. Because Paul had other things to do. His goal was to get to Jerusalem. Twenty-five through twenty-seven. Now I know that none of you among you whom I have gone about preaching in the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. We read that earlier, but this is where our tour ends, and we're going to begin to spend some time. He tells these elders, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare. Will not spare the flock. Even from your own own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Paul uses a very common metaphor. He uses the metaphor of shepherds and sheep. First century Christians would have really understood what he's talking about. Us, not so much. We don't even know where our food comes most of the time. He uses the metaphor of shepherds, sheep, and wolves to describe the various relationship that goes on within and around any church. We have to understand everyone's role within the life of a church. It isn't just the pastor's responsibility. His life is not just this stage. 
I can guarantee you just from conversations and time spent with Matt, he's pulling in in 60 to 80 hours a week. This isn't probably even a tenth of what he does. So guess what? Pastors need help. But before we begin to expound on the metaphor of the flock and the shepherd, we have to understand one most important thing. Jesus is the great shepherd. Matthew 10.11, the good shepherd lays down his life. Matthew 10.14, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep. So let's talk about sheep, what their role is within a flock. What time we got? Really? 11.30, okay. Sheep are a very vulnerable commodity that needs to be led and managed delicately. There are tremendous benefits to having sheep. They are such a blessing. They have the ability to bond with their shepherd quickly. They know the voice of the shepherd. They not only know his voice, they may know his clicks, his whistles. And they go directly to them. The thing about shepherds in the east that is somewhat different from the shepherds or agricultural in the West, is that a shepherd literally leads his sheep. He stands in front of them, so anything coming at him, he protects them. In the Western culture, on cattle drives, what do they do? They drive them as hard and as fast as they can to get to market, to get the profits. They provide sustenance, meat. They provide wool for clothing. You can trade the wool, the meat, and other commodities. They were used in cultural rituals for sacrificial systems. They were used in betrothing practices. A a guy's father would give the bride's father some goats or some sheep. They were a sign of wealth. And the good sheep reproduced. Every spring there would be a lambing season. There's a lot of great things about sheep. There's a lot of great things about the members within any church. But there's challenges in the church. There's challenges in raising sheep. I know because I am one. They can be dumb, they can be stubborn, they keep going astray, they escape from pins. And what they do today is when you have a sheep, whether it's a buck, a ewe, or a weather, if you've got a knot-headed sheep that continues to escape and jump the fence, 
They do two things with them. They either butcher them or sell them. And the reason why is that it impacts the behavior of the other sheep. So you've got to take care of the one knucklehead so that the other sheep can thrive. Sheep are distracted easily. They don't have predation detection because they're so busy with the grass that their heads not, never really go up. So they can't know if they're being stalked. They take for granted that the shepherd is watching and can see everything going on within his flock. They're defenseless. They have no claws, no teeth. They're not very fast. All they can do is... Bah! All they can do is complain. They're skittish. Especially in the beginning of a relationship with a shepherd. They're easy prey if they're not guarded well. Let's talk about the role of a shepherd, a pastor. The pastor, the shepherd, has to be in tune with the life of his flock. He's got to know what's going on with him. So he's got to be super attentive. He's got to know what's going on with the land, where the good green pastures are. He's got to know where to take them to get water. He's got to make sure their health is good. Their physical health. Do they have any diseases? Do they have any infections? Are they injured in any way? That's what a shepherd does. Are they stressed? Do you know what stress does to animals? It affects their meat. The taste of their meat. And sheep are a really nervous animal. So the shepherd establishes areas of shelter and protection at night. He's constantly under surveillance for wolves. Not only does he have all those different responsibilities, guess what he's, ever, guess what he's got to do if he's going to maintain the health and grow a flock? He's got to train under shepherds. To help him. He's got to be assertive. We all know Psalm 23. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Sometimes he has to defend the flock. Shepherds back then used a slingshot and a rod. With a, it was a wooden club with studded sharp pieces of metal. 
And he had another tool. It's probably his most important tool. His staff. It was used for directing the sheep. It was used for rescuing the sheep. When they weren't paying attention and they kept going after the grass and they got their head stuck in a thicket and they weren't smart enough to know how to get out. So he would take the staff and the staff is like a big long cane but it loops around and it's got a notch about here and he would take the end of the staff and he would gently loop it around the sheep's neck or the lamb's neck and pull it to safety. I don't know how many times throughout my life I've had shepherds rescue me because of stupid decisions, rebellion. The one, is the, one of the most greatest things about shepherds, if they're a true shepherd, they will sacrifice their own well-being for the life of the flock and the community's livelihood. Because the shepherd isn't just worried about today's flock. He's looking at the 30,000 foot picture of the future. He's looking beyond today. He's looking to next year, to five years, to ten years, but he also knows at some point his time's over. You're not going to sell the sheep that you've invested your whole life into and that are productive and that are living great lives. No. You've spent months, years, and entire life grooming somebody else with the knowledge and experience that you have to continue the flock. Under shepherds. Now, I know under-shepherds aren't in the Scripture, in this passage, but I think we have to understand that there's different levels of being a shepherd. So under-shepherds, what are our under-shepherds? They are our assistant pastors. There are youth pastors. There are administrative pastors. There's teachers. There's elders. Anybody that volunteers within a congregation. You are an under-shepherd. But the ones that go out with the flock, that the pastor, that the shepherd is training to lead the next group, well, their job is simply this, to support the pastor. Now, in biblical times, most under-shepherds were probably going to be sons of the family. And sometimes they would hire other people to help with the sheep. If under-shepherds only understood how important they are, you may not get to stand on stage But because of your willingness to help observe 
and manage the flock. It allows the shepherd to lead it, go somewhere else for a minute or to leave the flock entirely to go look for the one. I know we're familiar with the scripture where it talks about the shepherd leaving the 99 to go to the one. Have you ever thought about why he was able to leave the flock? Do you leave a flock that is dumb? That is defenseless? Do you leave them by themselves? Because you don't know how long a shepherd's going to be away to rescue one of the fold. No. He's got people he trained to keep watch for the wolves. To keep watch on the flock's health. Their job is to communicate what they observe and see and interact to the pastor or the shepherd, their interactions with the flock. Their additional predatory observation and defense. A lot of flocks also have sheepdogs, so they may be training sheepdogs as another layer of protection. They gain the knowledge of the shepherd and they can pass it on to the next shepherd. The the cycle continues. It doesn't matter who the shepherd is, but that they have the same goals. They have the same training. There's challenges though of grooming under shepherds. Like anywhere you train, whether it's at work or at school or in sports, their inexperience in the beginning they think is a deficit. They can become easily overwhelmed with responsibilities and predators. They can be insecure and instead of learning who God wants them to be, they try to emulate the pastor, the shepherd, instead of developing their own strengths. I remember as a young minister, just beginning to preach. After a couple times, my wife was like, what are you doing? You have the same tics, the same speech patterns. Because I wanted to do it right. Because I wanted his affirmation. The only affirmation you should be going for is Christ's. Their eagerness. They're eager, especially when they're young. They're really eager. I'm not eager so much anymore. They see what's in front of them but they can't see what's beyond. And sometimes their decisions can negatively impact the entire flock. A lot of times, under-shepherds have a lot of passion. They may have that one thing that they're good at. Whether it's being a youth pastor, being a children's pastor, being 
over the finances. They're passionate about it. But sometimes they're out of pocket with their passion. All it is is zeal without direction. And that's where the shepherd comes in. He's got to pull them back. He's got to have the closed door meetings with them. And sometimes it's just like, hey, you know what? You screwed up. Let's talk about how this isn't going to happen again. And there's other times where the soft rebuke won't do it. And the shepherd has to be the bad guy. The last personality, the last important thing we need to know about the life of the flock is wolves. We all got our wolf stories, right? Wolves are nothing more than predators that kill without conscience. They don't kill just to eat, to survive. They kill because it's fun. Palestinian wolves didn't hunt in packs like the wolves in the West. They hunted alone. Paul warned the elders. There's going to be wolves from the outside of the flock. That's a no-brainer for the church. You're going to have activist groups. You're going to have politicians. And we can go on and on and on about the adversaries that we have outside the church. They're easy to see. Easy to identify because they're not quiet. But probably the most dangerous wolf there could be is the one that comes from within inside the church. They use the appearance of similarity and secrecy to steal, kill, and destroy. False teachers that pervert the gospel for personal gain and to take away sheep. Wolves follow it in camouflage at close distances. They're very patient. They will wait you out. They are looking for their moment of opportunity. Where there is sheep, there's a wolf. May not be right now. It may not be a year from now. But you keep your guard up. Ann and I were living in St. Louis. Late 20s, early 30s, we were assistant pastors at a church. And we had a great pastor. I thought we had a great pastor. He was very tall. He was very, I don't know that he was good looking, but he was charismatic. He was a good communicator. 
He was well respected in the denomination. And yet, our church wasn't growing. And, I, and I'm thinking to myself, we got everything in place. We've got the pastor. We've got the worship team. We've got all the programs we need. People should be knocking down the door to come hear him. Never happened. One day I'm sitting at my job, and the news breaks. The guy that I called Shepherd was on the news. His mugshot up on the screen. He was accused of sexually assaulting girls for years. From the church he was in before he came to us, up until the time he left us. Nobody wants to believe anything negative about their pastor and their shepherd. So like all good staff do, we went to where he was basically hiding out. And he was crying and he was with another member of the church and I just asked him point blank. Did you do what you're being accused of? He goes, no, I didn't. I said, okay, I'll stand by you until it's proven otherwise. Guess what? It was proven otherwise. And it devastated the church. It not only devastated the church, it devastated an entire denomination within a region because this guy was so well respected. He was going to be the next person on top for the denomination. But he was a wolf. Nobody within the church, except one, could detect the wolf. She's sitting right there. I was really high on this guy because I was like, man, he's going to impact my future. He's going to set my trajectory at such a level. Sky's the limit. And Ann goes, no, there's something off. She, even though she wasn't trained to be, was watching out for the sheep. She watched his every move, how he interacted with females, how he treated people. I learned to ask questions and not just take what comes out of somebody's mouth as gospel. Because sometimes they may be using the same jargon as us, but their motivation is quite the opposite. So what's the defense against wolves? You kill it. Because if you don't kill it, it continues to come back. Well, we can't kill people. We just can't. We may want to kill people. So what do we do if we can't kill the wolf? Well, we have to be vigilant. 
We have to always be on our... This thing keeps going up and down. We always have to be on our guard looking. Even when it doesn't feel like there's something around and you're in that season of blessing, everything's going good, and then you're rocked. It's like when you're walking at the airport and they got the signs up. If you see something, you say something. You have to expose wolves. As young as this church plant is, it's already had to address wolves. And guess what? When you're a new church plant within any area, you're going to have people in the beginning come in and watch, and observe, and wait to bring division. They come in as a believer, a single believer, and their only mission is to find the weakest of the guy or the girls who they can manipulate to sleep together. They will come with all their business acumen and the only reason they're there is to expand their businesses through their church relationships. There are many breeds of wolves. Doesn't matter what they look like, why they're here, we got to expose them. This point, some people may argue. But expulsion. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 through 5, 1 through 5, Paul refers to the handling of a continual offender. What's he tell them? Hand them over to Satan. I am not saying that someone who has wolf tendencies, wolf characteristics, can't come to a true saving knowledge of the gospel. But you got to know where he's at. You got to know what he's doing, how he's moving within a church. Paul understood the dangers of spreading the gospel. Many would hate the message. Others would envy and attempt to mimic its power for personal gain at expense to others. The shepherd and the sheep was one metaphor Jesus used to explain his relationship to the church and the type of relationships that we would have with the world and each other. Although the church at Ephesus experienced a deep, powerful, and authentic move of God, Paul knew how vulnerable they remained. One man alone will not be enough to sustain the life of a flock. The elders... The disciples, the new converts would all have to learn how to work together, to live together, to spread the gospel together while contending 
with known and unknown wolves. This metaphor holds true today. The lives of shepherds and sheep and under-shepherds are going to continue to be ravaged by wolves. If we refuse to evaluate our roles within the flock. Because the wolves are going to continue to feast. If I hear one more sermon title about church, wake up. Come on, man. We've been hearing that for 40 years. We need to change the message. Church, grow up. Go out. If you're just going to sit in a church and consume, like sheep have the tendency to do, they won't stop eating. They'll eat everything in front of them, but but what do they bring? How do they minister to us? How are you ministering to each other? Well, I don't know how to preach. It isn't about that. You got ears? You can listen. Do you know how to encourage? Do you, know how, do you have the gift of faith? Can you just be a good friend within the body? Because there's a lot of lonely people in church. And we can't continue to expect our pastors to do it all. I am very grateful for this church because I don't think that we have 20 people, 20% of people doing 80% of the work. I think our average is much higher than that. That's why I chose to come here. But you know what? In the beginning, all I wanted to do was spectate. I just wanted to sit in my chair, listen to a good message, listen to a controversial message, and leave. We got to quit spectating and start participating. Every one of us has some type of gift to offer. And God is going to use you if you quit spectating.